0: hello everyone and welcome back to survive this crit this episode we have the pleasure of being joined by casey jones casey is a writer and voice actor living in los angeles where they're working and writing and developing film and TV series for the past several years. They host and produce Anywhere But Now, a Doctor Who actual play podcast and the joy of GMing. When they're not baking, enjoying a great cup of coffee, or dreaming up their next RPG mod, Casey's running the games of D&D on StartPlaying.games or coaching voice actors to help widen their range of character voices. And we will include all those details to get in touch with Casey in the show notes. So welcome, Casey, to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so
2: much. It's lovely to be here. So Dr. Who podcast. So what's all that about?
1: Well, I love Dr. Who from way back. Uh, The first thing I ever saw of classic Who was uh, John Pertwee running from giant spiders, falling over and turning into Tom Baker. I was confused and hooked at the same time. And I, uh, Cubicle 7 has published two editions of the RPG in addition to a Dungeons and Dragons version of the same game called Doctors and Daleks. Uh, And it's the, the game, just like the show, you know, concentrates on problem solving and mystery solving and finding ways to hoist the baddie with their own petard because I I absolutely love the hoist by their own petard trope. It's like, it's, it's, it's right there in the recipe makeup. And um, for our show, Anywhere But Now, a Doctor Who actual play podcast, I thought it would be interesting to portray, uh, to have players portray Time Lords other than the Doctor. Um, because I'd experienced players before who playing the doctor, you know, who's been, you know, a billion years old and has done everything, fought the Daleks a hundred times at least. And I thought it'd be more interesting to play with young, inexperienced Time Lords kicking the time tires on their TARDIS for the first time. And that's what we've got with our lovely cast of characters, uh, with the Fixer, who is in the doctoral program uh, creation of yours truly, uh, where he... And other Time Lords his age, about one to 200 years old, uh, have been brought up on the stories of the Doctor and are now out traveling through time and facing squidgy monsters and running from weeping angels and traipsing across alien landscapes in search of answers to why they crashed, etc., Um, But we use music uh, provided by the wonderful Tabletop Audio. Thanks, Tim, as always, for your wonderful music and sound effects from the show, as well as background noise put together by moi, because I really love Big Finish, the audio adventures that use producers and composers and actors from the original and the class and the new who shows. And I love that verisimilitude, that immersive storytelling that you feel like you're part of the story. And that's what we go for every time.
2: Yeah, no, just as a fan of Doctor Who myself, like,
1: that's cool to see, like,
2: I had never looked into any podcasts related to Doctor Who. I actually kind of dropped off the whole Doctor Who uh, universe for the past few years now, just getting Mm -hmm. into other things. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it was always really fun watching watching the classic, well, classic. Quotation marks, Tenet, Smith, Eccles, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest; they're the sex symbols. They're the they're ones that really hook in my generation
0: here. I so I love that you treat it like an entire production, and mm. I do want to circle back to that because your career has been in TV and film development. But I did want to tag on to that. You also have a secondary sister podcast called Mm -hmm. The Joy of GMing, which I was a guest on. I'll include the link to that below because it was a really fun interview. But Mm -hmm. what inspired you to bring on a sister podcast on top of this already successful podcast that you have?
1: Um, For a couple of reasons. And that's an incredible question. Thank you, Kylie. Um, Part of it was wanting to network more with the brilliant community of podcasters and tabletop creators and writers out there but also like you know informally give have a show out there that does more than just tell stories i wanted something that could also inspire and mm-hmm. answer questions people had about things like, well, how do I write my first mod? How do I find character voices? How do I break into comic book illustration for Doctor Who? Like, we have answers for those questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've had on scholars in d and and Critical Role. We've had on game writers, a film director, and um, Aaron Angelini, who was the colorist for the titan run of the 13th doctor and her colors just popped so beautifully like i had to reach out and say would you like to be on her show we would love to just gush about your work and you know talk to our audience about freelancing and everything because in my experience folks that want to put together a podcast about a game know or have the bones of knowing the hustle because it is all hustle and um the joy of gming can be inspirational, hopefully, you know, giving me little tips and hearing like, you know, if I can do this with a studio box, a laptop, and um, some really banging background music, then then so can you. Hmm.
0: I love that. And I didn't realize that you've had so many incredible creators on. I've listened to a few of them, but I'm going to have to go back through the catalog because I mean, even, even as we're doing this, like it's, we still like learning from other people too, which is why Mm -hmm. we have people who are a few steps ahead of us or offer a different perspective than we have. That's why we bring other people on. It's all about sharing differing opinions and trying to learn and grow from each other. Absolutely. So I did want to ask, what's Mm -hmm. been the most rewarding part about creating your own podcast?
1: That is a wonderful question. If I had to, if I had to answer for just anywhere but now, it's the satisfaction of filling the niche of well, there's never been a story quite like X, or there's never <laughs> been a Doctor Who episode where they did Y, um, or ooh, I've got an idea. What about you know, Weeping Angels on an art gallery ship in the middle of nowhere? And because we have no budget (laughs) and it's all fueled by imagination and whatever maps I can illustrate, the imagination fills in those gaps and allows us to visit strange worlds that we've never seen before or bring back villains that haven't been seen in 20, 30 years and throw in cheeky little kisses with history to ancient episodes of the show. But honestly, one of the most satisfying things is. Having put the challenge to myself of, I want to put together a season of shows, a season of episodes that feel like Doctor Who. And um, the first season, a semester abroad, uh, has the fixer bouncing back and forth across time and space to the distant future, to the past as far back as the 1880s. And it's it's a, a mix of all these wonderful ingredients that still feel like who you know um and i'm i'm just so grateful the show exists so grateful the game is ha- is so easy to pick up and put in these different genres you know and thanks to the internet, everything we do is permanent somewhere. So, you know, uh, long after I'm gone, the show will hopefully still be out there and, and easy to follow. Well, here's season one and here's season two, and here's the joy of GMing episodes, you know, and like, just touch something that is, that has been very special to me.
0: Yeah. I love that. And I think what you're saying about Allowing people to use their imaginations and create mm-hmm. this world that allows them to be immersed by the purely by their own imagination since they can't see the maps that you're working off of. I think that's the beautiful thing about RPGs, but mm-hmm. it also can be really challenging. So what's been the most challenging part about being a podcast host on either platform?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, the challenges of a podcast host and the, po- the challenges of a GM or DM are, there's a lot of overlap scheduling trying to get everyone at the same table at the same time um and dealing with you know uh my background in theater production as well has helped me uh be an improviser when we have things like technical difficulties of well we're here to record and everything but uh we're not camera ready today so back to audio it is and we just roll with the punches and do the best we can sometimes because the show must go on but uh, honestly, technical difficulties and just the wrangling of people <laughs> sometimes uh, has been the, the bigger of the challenges. Um, but also just making sure with a game where the individual stories may or may not have been told before, making sure that they've gotten a facelift, that they've gotten a fresh coat of paint, and that each of the characters that you now are familiar with as the GM can also make sure that they each have something to do, you know. Mm. So they're not just uh, passengers on a story. They're interacting with it. They're they're getting their hands figuratively dirty, you know, uh, getting in the clay of it, talking with characters, making their own decisions, burning some towns down. Um, these th- these are some of the things that have happened uh, with our just endlessly creative players.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, that's wonderful. I didn't realize that as a GM that you take so much pride and focus on creating uh, like almost development and arcs for your characters Mm -hmm. you know because it is such a collaborative process I know a lot of that is communication with the players as well so Mm -hmm. how do you typically do that do you have a conversation with the players similar to how a director or a writer would have a conversation with an actor being like hey this is kind of what I'm thinking of your arc for this season what do you think
1: uh, that's that's very astute. That's very, very astute. Yes, uh, just as when we had a film director on the show, The Joy of GMing, we talked about how GMing or DMing can sometimes be like directing because you're like, you know, evoking the mood and reminding them of their motivation and third thing. And with one of the secret weapons of the Doctor Who game is that right on the character sheet, it asks... Uh, what is this character's driving focus? What is their Mm. short-term goal? And once I know those things and I know that the players have chosen them specifically, that is when I can start to custom tailor obstacles in their way of, well, I'm here to fix everything. I was like, okay, then we're going to present you with some problems that defy fixing. I want to find the truth. Okay, I'm going to put obstacles in your way that look like the truth, but are actually far more dangerous, things like that, to not only uh, challenge them and engage them, but also surprise them um, so that they surprise themselves. Uh, That's the thing I love about uh dming and gming in general like i've never written a kill box i've never had a tpk i have never actively tried to kill my pcs it's always been the npcs who are you know throwing uh roadblocks in their way or trying to end their fictional lives but when a player experiences i can overcome this scary thing i didn't know i could overcome I can surprise myself by rising to the occasion I didn't know I could rise to. They can carry that into their real life. They can carry that feeling of confidence. And I succeeded at a thing and surprised myself. They could draw on that the next time they come up against a challenge that they don't immediately have the answer to, you know, and having a story that is tailored to them so that they, oh, okay. Yeah, no, this is exactly what I'm looking for that really helps keep them engaged, you know, and like on the edge of their seats.
2: Everything you kind of described there with the storytelling aspect of what goes into DMing, trying to figure out a character's driving force. Mm-hmm. Like, I know I try and do that too. Like, I've both DMed and created characters. And, you know, we we have those attributes in, uh, in D&D. It's your history, your background, stuff like that. Those mm-hmm. are things like I do similar things. I will try and focus in on those attributes when I get other players like, OK, what what are the perfect things that you're going to probably enjoy uh, participating in? Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, like, hopefully you, you make it obvious enough where a person's like, oh, I have a deep seated hatred for this race of people or something like that. No wonder mm-hmm. oh, the, the, the goblins. Mm-hmm. I hate the goblins. The goblins are here. So my mother exactly so clearly this has to do with me and you know it gets it gets uh participating and it gets them uh feeling like it's personally involved Mm -hmm. and i think one of the hardest things is always like whenever a character actually dies you're kind of saying like you don't want to kill another person's character that feels kind of harsh especially when you're the storyteller you know Mm -hmm. you're trying to build up a story for these people but sometimes it happens. It's like you don't want it to happen, so it's always really funny when someone takes it a little personally. Like I didn't, I, I, I didn't do it on purpose, you know. Yeah, you ever had no. that?
1: Like, um, I haven't personally, um, mostly because the way that Doctor Who is built as a game, um, there are a number of safety measures, for lack of a better word term, between them and an immediate kill shot you know not the least of which is I've engineered reasons per game why the bad guy is not immediately going to go for the kill shot they need you alive to solve the problem for them or you have some bit of information that you don't know you have or you could be useful uh as slave labor over in the time mines um which has had ha- which has happened but there's also things like story points where you can buy down injury um we had a character Uh, take a lethal hit from a Dalek gunstick and the player uh, wisely spent some story points and was like okay rather than a direct hit it just (sharp) shaves across your shoulders and you feel the most searing pain across your shoulder blades and you know your arms go numb for a moment because like in a combat heavy game like D&D um, where a player, where a character's death can be sudden and surprising. Um, I also want to make sure that there are outs for them. You know, I'm running uh, Curse of Strahd for a lovely table of players right now. And they're uh, and about halfway through the Durst house or death house, spoilers, for uh, those unfamiliar with the mod Curse of Strahd, like there are plenty of opportunities to get killed. And if you do fall, there may be something waiting to pick you back up again. And that's been a lot of fun to to employ. We had a character shoved hard over a banister, fell two stories and broke his neck by taking sufficient hit points in the fall. And he was pushed by an animated suit of armor. And when he was revived, when he was resurrected and had gotten his bearings, he checked himself and found a little miniature figure of the thing that killed him waiting for him in his pocket. And that was just with him the rest of the episode until he came up with a very creative way of getting rid of it. Like, I was fully prepared for this to be like a cursed object that would follow him for days, if not, you know, further adventures. But he, he got rid of it in such a creative and inventive way that fit the story accidentally. Uh, like, it hadn't been intentioned to be used there. But he had done it so creatively, and his RP had been so convincing. It was like, okay yeah no you've got inspiration now that was incredible so yeah like there's there's usually a way to either bring the character back from the brink or uh back in the long ago because doctor who is both as a show and as a game strongly works on teamwork and Mm -hmm. one of the characters at a table uh again time and again had you know um Leroy Jenkins their way into near disaster. So after one of the games where like they had to be saved from utter calamity, not to be mistaken with calamity, the character went on anywhere, but now, but um, after one of these very near misses, I, you know, I took him aside after one of the games like, you know, by the way, this is a game that really rewards teamwork more than solo action and you know like this is reflected in what happens to the characters because if you swing big and you miss and you're standing on your own that could be it and after that they they did take a more a broader view of like okay yeah let's see how we can help the team out let's see how we can work together and they they had a lot more success with the game from there
0: wow i feel like you broke things down so wonderfully there And I do want to transition into kind of your career, if that is all Mm -hmm. right with you. So how did you get started in the industry? And generally speaking, what's been your path?
1: My path has been wayward as hell. Um, (laughs) I went to college to get a theater degree because acting, I thought, was my foremost passion, even though by this point, I'd already written at least my first murder mystery one act. And uh, I graduated with a degree in theater and had more fun and more meaning running scary ass games of Vampire the Masquerade on campus with a fog machine and soundtrack to aliens and things like that to immerse and evoke and scare the pants off of you that uh, the writing side, the creative side of things started to take hold. And um, a couple of years after I left college and was working in Maryland, a friend's uh, sister died at the age of 19 from a form of brain cancer that usually doesn't attack someone until their late 80s. And um, I helped him grieve, and that woke something in me. Like, my biggest creative drive is, has this story been told yet? And the story in question there was Have superheroes ever just dealt with crippling loss? And the answer I'd found was no. Superman died and came back. Green Lantern went crazy, killed all the other Green Lanterns, went, died, reigniting the sun. He came back. Batman broke his back. There was another Batman. Bruce Wayne's fine. He's Batmaning again. Spider Man has lost his powers, God knows how many times, and gotten them back. So, what I worked on for about five years was a graphic novel called All Fall Down about superheroes coping with that loss and just dealing with it like, you know, people who struggle to figure out who they are now that they can't fly and are no longer bulletproof. What do you do when you're, you know, the fastest man in the world and now you no longer have legs because they shattered? How do you go through life as a chimpanzee because you're trapped as a chimpanzee without vocal cords that can form human speech? And wrote a very depressing book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was living in New York and went to New York Comic-Con. I had saved up and uh, had about a dozen pages of a comic book put together that I submitted to a couple of different uh, places that accepted unsolicited submissions at New York Comic-Con. And the publisher that said yes, the publisher that said, can you come back tomorrow to talk about this? was eventually the same publisher who said, hey, I want to turn this graphic novel into an animated feature. Do you think you could help with that? And from there, I have been involved very closely on dozens of feature scripts on television projects, usually behind the lines as like a ghostwriter or a creative development or a script coordinator, things like that, while you know, grabbing original material with both hands and saying, how can we turn this thing that works as a graphic novel into something that works as a half hour of television or a feature length adventure with those expected beats to be something approximating successful. And the more of those I did, the more confident I became. um, And I have written audio adventures, formatting for uh, graphic audio. I have written stage plays I produced in Times Square. I have written uh, a spell book that was never published as thick as the Necronomicon um, and children's animation and adults, uh, like grown up rated R kind of PG-13 level violence and things in mysteries and action and animation and a whole bunch of different genres and mediums that left me feeling like, holy crap, I have done a lot of different kinds of mediums and things. And since then, I've been uh, doing my best to put that expertise into the next things I work on, whether it's helping someone develop a catchy title for their show or the name of a character that has been eluding them for weeks, helping people brainstorm, helping people click sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, has been really, has been really satisfying.
0: So you're like the light bulb in like that that'll go off (gasps) whoa (laughs)
1: Whoa, (laughs) oh my goodness I I I am the ideas person Um, you're the light (laughs) bulb you
0: you make ideas happen for other people and for yourself obviously Mm -hmm. so we've heard from some other writers too that writing can often be sometimes a solitary process sometimes a collaborative process based on Mm -hmm. the sounds of it yours has been fairly collaborative but What is the process of writing like for you? Because I know there's, you write so many different genres, including your mystery noirs, but Mm -hmm. what is typically your process?
1: My first step whenever I am tackling a new genre or a new medium is to read about it. Um, The first thing I bought when I did when I realized when I dedicated myself okay we're going to write a comic book and try to get it published The first thing I went out and got was the DC guide to writing comics, so I could get the format down so I could submit something that looked like other people were submitting. Um, Because format is super important, but also understanding the genre that you're working in. Um, It's not enough to like mysteries. Liking mysteries does not mean you understand how to write them and where the different pieces have to go and what misleads you have to weave into things in order to write a satisfying mystery. The same way that um, an episode of Doctor Who might not feel quite like an episode of Doctor Who if you don't hit enough of the beats and the ingredients that people are expecting from a nice sci-fi adventure, you know? Mm. So I learn, I study, I collect the hell out of worksheets. Um, I have scene cards. I have outlines. I have worksheets that I, that are my go-tos. I never just jump in to page one, line one, without any idea of what I'm doing. Usually I have character profiles of the, of the leads, what they want, what their shortcomings are, how that's going to be a problem for them in the story. I have outlines of the whole thing and make sure that it follows roughly the the expected formula of the genre in question, because I personally view the, the creative supply of tropes and plot twists and everything else as a giant freaking pantry in the kitchen. And all of the ingredients already exist. You cannot invent ingredients. Don't worry about trying, don't rack your brain trying to come up with an original idea. No one's had one in ages. Um, everything has been, you know, someone's reflection on something they saw somewhere else and then came back and gave it their best effort. And so you can tell a Doctor Who story or an alien story or a D&D story using really familiar, really expected and eagerly anticipated tropes of, oh, we're going into a haunted house, oh, this is going to be spooky as hell, you know but you've also done the work of getting lines and veils from your players so that you can modify the story so that, you know, you're not horrifying someone or traumatizing them. You're just terrifying them. You're just taking them to the edge of their discomfort zone (laughs) for a memorable time. Um, But yeah, like it's, it, it may sound a little dry or boring that like, well, step one is read about it. Step two is get your worksheets together. Step three is, plot and build and go from there um but uh yeah um it starts with an idea for a mod or a story or something like that or in the case of a murder mystery an interesting way to die or an interesting motive for someone to be killed and um i have a whole folder uh of just random tidbits of trivia and uh things like that of like Uh, At one point, uh, a woman uh, turned to her husband and said, Those lottery tickets you're buying are a waste of money. Here, I'll show you. And then she bought a winning lottery ticket. (laughs) Little things like that, that like, no, that could never actually happen, become the spark of a murder mystery the same way that like, I like art galleries. It's a nice fancy place to take some time and reflect. So what if we put a heist there and filled it with weeping angels and trapped you stranded from any kind of escape as you get closer to an ultraviolet star that puts even more angels on the walls, reaching out of paintings to try and grab at you. Like I did not invent weeping angels. I did not invent living paintings. I did not invent the ultraviolet spectrum, but putting them together in an interesting combination makes for, you know, some novel storytelling.
0: You brought up two interesting points that I want to understand a little bit deeper about how you combine these principles together. So you said, I don't use any new ingredients. The ingredients are there. But you also Mm -hmm. said, I tell stories that have not been told before. So, not quite this way. Yeah. So, I want to understand what that bridge is and how they, it all comes together in that way.
1: You start with what someone recognizes and what someone expects. And once they have the frame of reference of, oh, I'm in a superhero story, why are they going to support groups? You know, we give them enough of a framework narratively to uh, i recognize where they are and build up some of their own expectations of heroes in spandex and bad guys plotting up until the last chapter and you know government operatives in the background pulling strings and things like that and by using them for slightly different purposes by tweaking them and adding our own little ingredients um My favorite example are my chocolate chip cookies because the chocolate chip cookies I make have been uh, time-tested recipe-wise, like I know exactly how much butter in terms of tablespoons needs to go in uh, versus white sugar and brown sugar. But then I add a little bit of my own secret ingredient uh, to add to the cookie so that when someone bites into it, they're still tasting a delicious chocolate chip cookie, but also, mmm! What is that? What is that in there? Is it the toasted bits of almonds? You know, is it an extra splash of vanilla? Uh, Things like that. And the nice thing is my murder mysteries come with those cookie recipes (laughs) so that to further the immersion, you know, um, right up at front too, um, the reader can look at the cookie recipe, follow it to the letter if they want, or improvise and make it their own so that they have a plate of those cookies while Margot is going through her day trying to solve the latest murder, you know, and they can feel like this does taste like what she's tasting. Wow. And they feel that little bit closer to the characters, a little bit closer to being in the story. So yeah, I I'm sorry that. if I rambled.
0: <laughs> no, you're good. No, no, I love, love how it. immersive you make your work.
2: It's very clear through just like your language and your body, how you're how passionate you are about like all the storytelling and everything you're talking mm-hmm. about earlier and you know this this is a little bit of a tangent but i hope it's not too long of a tangent um you were talking about your start into storytelling and you just grabbed the what was it dc's how to write a dc the DC comic.
1: guide to writing comics yeah
2: exactly and so that just it, it kind of like sparked the question in my in my mind a bit so are you more of a, a since you know a lot of people have their feelings about okay dc movie versus marvel movie Where where do you lie? Are you more of a DC comic, Marvel comic, or something like completely third party?
1: I admit I read more Marvel comics than DC these days. Um, I love Spider-Man. I'm a big fan of Thor. The Oh my God, the Immortal Hulk that Al Ewing wrote a couple of years ago um, is one of the best flat out horror comics uh, I've ever read. I must have read his series of the Immortal Hulk at least three times because it captures body horror and uh, resurrection horror and that whole line of storytelling just brilliantly. And the fact that it was so good made me come back to read his Immortal Thor, uh, which is now in production. On the DC side, I'm a big, I'm a huge fan of Nightwing. That's probably my favorite current run comic in the DC just because Batman has been one city war after city war after city war, you get, you know, city war fatigue. Um, but Nightwing is excellent. Teen Titans is a good read, Um, but yeah, I think I'm doing most of my uh, comic reading on the Marvel side of things these days. That's interesting.
2: So that's really cool. How do you feel about um, the fact that James Gunn has kind of taken over the the DC uh, side of things uh, more?
1: Having seen what he did first with the Guardians of the Galaxy, um and even before that uh the remake of Dawn of the Dead that was one of the first uh aughts, 2000 aughts horror films that I really sunk my teeth into but James Gunn at the helm of DC I'm excited to see what he does uh I enjoyed The Suicide Squad a lot more than I enjoyed mm. Suicide Squad and James Gunn his irreverent storytelling and Slither is another great example of this that was his take on alien horror that does not follow the usual trope. It sets it up like, oh, great, okay, we've great, we've got this alien threat that's slowly getting more and more pervasive in town. But the characters we're introduced to aren't just those carbon copy, cookie cutter small town horror movie characters we've grown to expect, like the sheriff with a terrible marriage is actually trying to make his marriage better instead of it being dead on arrival and the two haven't even spoken in months. They're like, no, they're actually trying to make things work, you know? Um, Like the fact that the characters genuinely want things, that they have flaws, that they have time to actually tell you about and unfold versus, I'm gonna give you my tragic backstory and point out all the things that make me so-called unique and tell the audience for the fourth time is like, hey, we're not the heroes, we're the other guys. And like, no, we get it. This is bad storytelling. And move on with our day. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, James Gunn's were like, I mean, uh, I have to say it, like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, I almost wept. So did I, oh my goodness. The the, the punches to the gut. After another, after another, after another. It was was really nicely done. Mm
2: -hmm. That's really cool. Maybe we should start transitioning now, talk, since we're talking about movies, start, start talking mm-hmm. about the actual alien movie. So, one thing, I love the shirt, love the shirt. I actually spent quite a bit of time actually looking into the, the Nostromo itself, trying to learn, mm-hmm. like, okay, at first, like, I saw the movie, and I was like, that's such an interesting name, the Nostramo. what, where did that come from? And I started looking that up, and then I started looking into, like, okay, what was the whole set design for it and everything? Um, so just so we could kind of talk about, you know, the movie The Alien,
1: what what is kind of like your favorite part of of this movie? Asking me what my favorite part of Alien is, is like asking an architect uh, what his favorite part of another building someone else designed is. Um, I love the whole building the the derelict that they crawl into the the production history the fact that the director's kids were in some of those space suits to give it a smaller scale because the adults were having trouble staying conscious in the O2 mix of the yeah. derelict the special effects that were 100% practical you know um, the decisions they made time and again to really nauseate the audience, the thematic stuff that is truly horrifying in there, that was inspired by nature, that was plumbed from nightmares, that uh, was the second or third draft of an unsuccessful movie that had already been written called Star Beast, you know, Um, and oh god, the whole thing, the fact that uh, the entire crew, the script was written genderless, there's a reason all the characters go by just their last names, Lambert and Ash and things like that, because they were written without the gender of the character in mind. It was like, okay, well, this one's going to do this. This one's going to have these characteristics and so forth, which is one of the reasons it was so surprising that Sigourney Weaver um, didn't get top billing. Tom Skerritt did because number one, he was the biggest star of the cast at the time, Um, but it was just assumed that the lead actor would also be, you know, the last person standing and, gloriously, that was not the case. The music, good God, the music, I cannot count the number of games I have uh, run to Jerry Goldsmith's score. It's absolutely incredible. The fact that people ran, nauseated, screaming and passing out from the original screenings of the film when it first came out. Um, I just, I love the entire film, start to finish. Um, The acting is is incredible. The characters are... Yeah. It's, I I could gush a love letter. Alien is wonderful. Like that cosmic horror has stayed with me pretty much my entire life. Um, when I was, I think like nine years old, my family went to Florida and I we, we took the MGM movie ride and the, the block of it that was getting through alien. This was, I was nine years old. I hadn't seen alien yet. But fast forward eight or nine years and I'd actually sit down feeling brave enough to actually watch the movie and I felt like I'd already been inside of it and it was incredible. It was just, oh, just oh, magnificent stuff.
0: I love that. Well, so I have a question as a countering point because this was not necessarily my favorite horror movie I've ever seen, but mm-hmm. I got to ask because- the characters yes we only know them by their last name but we don't know a lot about them and i know mm-hmm. that you do rpgs with characters that have really strong arcs characters that have a lot of dynamics and that was something i felt and this is just my opinion so that way people in the comments don't assassinate me but i felt well, yeah, maybe they, do. Like they didn't yeah. have a whole like the characters didn't have a whole lot of color i felt like toward mm. the end i was reading to make sure the cat was alive more than anything else. was <laughs> the poor cat, I was like, oh my gosh, that poor cat is going to die. And so I, I want to hear your perspective on that, especially as a writer, because obviously you grew very attached to these characters and you have a very mm-hmm. personal story connected to the film. But mm-hmm. as outsiders, Nick and I are watching this 40 plus years after it's come out. So we, I want to hear that perspective as well on the character development, because I felt like some other horror movies today offer richer character backgrounds
1: i would agree with that i would agree with that the thing about characters and feeling a connection to them my personal experience it has less to do with the arc they go on and more with do they have a strong want do they have a desire that we can relate to um and for For Ripley, an early desire might be Can I get these crewmen who are technically under me to actually shut up and give me the respect I am due as the warrant officer? And Yafet Kato was told to improvise and piss uh, Sigourney off on a regular basis, just antagonize and antagonize and force her to stand up and say, Sit down and shut up, to like, you know, rise to the level of pushback he was giving her. Like that kind of antagonism was there. And like, it went from that to, well, I'm not being listened to. Well, something is trying to kill us all. How do we get out of this? And those same problems of, well, we're not listening to each other. We're not making uh, decisions based on what everyone wants. One of us is secretly trying to sabotage the entire thing. But she goes back for the cat. She goes back for the cat because of the connection to Jonesy. In the Margot Parrish mysteries I write about Margot, she's the cozy mystery uh, detective. She has a cat named Jonesy. Uh, I could not resist uh, throwing in a a shout out to one of my favorite films. But whether it's a film, a TV show, or a game, if the character really wants something, uh, I find that is the more significant hook then you know. Oh, and they went on this classic hero's journey, and this is exactly where they turned. They refused the call, and here is where they were pushed into action. And here's the time they spent in the belly of the beast, and here's where they emerged triumphant. Like you can hit those notes, and that's great. But a character who wants something, even if it's just a toasted egg sandwich, uh, like um, Harley did in the middle. I want to say the middle uh, of those. Uh, yeah, Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey but having a clearly defined desire um, can inform that arc. What are they going to do to get what they want? What are they, what is going to stop them? What are they going to have to overcome if they get what they want? Is it actually going to be worth all of the loss and (laughs) and suffering and everything else that they may or may not have gone through to get there? I feel like that really helps not only define the character, but, um, also can surprise you as the writer because you can get to, you know, chapter 22 or whatever. And this thing that on the back of your, in the back of the mental stove, you knew was always there, like this character, you kind of knew that they had a temper, but this is where it actually comes out for the first time. You're like, oh, oh, that couldn't have gone worse. Oh no. And pushing those little buttons getting those reactions out of the players, out of the listeners, and in a safe environment, obviously. We never want to make someone uncomfortable. Um, we never want to make someone feel bad or like need a hug and a blanket after uh, a game, although aftercare is always welcome. Yeah, the desire, I think, has as much to do with defining their arc as the arc itself that you know, you, you initially want to prescribe them. Well, I think a, a part of that is because it makes the character more relatable. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely, audiences can relate with their characters. It makes them, it, it helps them see themselves in the movie. And when it, the audience can see themselves in the movie, that's what really strikes people's interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, giving someone a desire, it's like, okay, yeah, we get it. You're, you're kind of the heroic person. You're charismatic. We we love, but then seeing like, oh, they want they want money okay but they want money for for their child or they want money so they can start up their own business or something like that like okay that then becomes like oh that's something i want too now mm-hmm. i can see myself in the character you know mm-hmm. little things like that so I, I i get what you're saying
0: yeah you provided a lot of clarity for me on because i definitely was coming into this fully prepared to be like this was not my favorite But I do appreciate you pointing out that just primal want. And I think that's Mm -hmm. something that every human can relate to, especially when you're in a situation like, am I going to survive? I have this desire and urge to survive. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you offering that perspective because I definitely was coming in with from a more critical point of view uh, when we started this podcast. So
2: (laughs) Yeah. And. What was it? Since kind of kind of mentioned it earlier on, I had some problems with this movie as well. My main one is just being like motivations for certain characters, specifically technically a character, the company. The company was like the big one. I had like all the all the issues with. I didn't understand it. Maybe you can help explain it for for myself and for other listeners who maybe were confused by it too, like. My, my biggest question, I, I was writing it down as I was watching the movie. I was like, why are they going to a place to grab some ore and then stopping at this other this other location app uh, midway through? And then became even more confusing later on when we we, we get that whole uh, back and forth like query and answer from um, mother from Ripley and Mother of like, mm-hmm. oh, turns out the mission the whole time was to stop and check out you know whatever alien organism well then in my mm-hmm. mind i go so then why wasn't the mission to go there in the first place and just tell these what was it i, I heard i, I love the way it was kind of described in one of the document one of the documentaries i watched these space truckers
1: yes i mean why they I, are they're space tr- they're space truckers they rather than just delivering the refined ore they are space trucking the entire refinery around space number 1 It's cosmic horror. There aren't always all the answers. The things that have thrown these things into place, the creatures that crashed the derelict don't have an immediate uh, explanation, nor do the eggs, the countless eggs, uh, just hiding under a laser screen provided by the Who, who were breaking in special effects in the next studio over. Um,
0: I remember that. That's a good fun fact to drop in there.
1: Yeah. Wayland Utani, who did not, I think, even have a name uh in the first script. Did uh not. yeah, they they stopped the Nostromo, pulled them out of cryogenic sleep on their way home because uh the the company knew or got signal um that LV426 had something worth stopping for. And of course, the prequels have informed how they knew that and things like that, which is you know. Some mysteries are better left unsolved, but the fact that the crew is expendable, Hmm. the fact that they do not care at all what happens to any of the living people on that ship, and the fact that they already have their own personal marionette hiding in plain sight to give the creature every advantage it can, um, is its own lovely mystery that unfolds, with very few clues at all. Like, you know, holy crap, Ash is a robot. Where did that come from? I didn't know robots were in this uh, genre of sci-fi story. Okay, that's a reveal. Thanks for letting us know. Um, But not having an answer, not understanding why did they do this? Why we didn't deserve this? Why did they throw us here? Is not ultimately the point. It's still an incredible question. and, And in a different genre of story might have a clearer answer. But the the short answer is, no, screw those guys. Screw all of them. They don't matter nearly as much as the result. We want mm-hmm. the creature. And it can arrive on its own, haunting a ship with nothing left walking around inside. And we'll deal with that when it gets here. The Alien comics that have been released uh, by, I want to say Fox Comics or Marvel, Marvel Comics, the last couple of years have been really good. Uh, because they, rather than one ongoing story, they've been telling feature-length stories in six-issue blocks of, oh no, the retired general has to go back up to the satellite here for one last mission, or oh no, a ship has crashed on this uh, colonist planet uh, days before we're su- we're finally supposed to be free and clear of Wayland yutanis obstruction for good, and things turn bad to worse. To awful to oh my god are any of us going to make it and they still include those surprises of oh character was a robot <laughs> mm-hmm. you know i was wondering that when i was watching the first uh
2: the movie the first time i was like i noticed a little white sweat coming down ian holmes uh, was ash's uh character mm-hmm. i was like what what i was like is see an alien too let's go and then the, <laughs> the fire extinguisher happened and i was like oh my god Actually, for me, that was kind of an eye roll moment because I was like, man, I I wanted him to be human because I wanted it to be that classic like, oh, I'm, you know, curiosity killed the cat. You know, I, I'm the science person and I curiosity got the better of me as I was trying to examine and be the first one to figure out alien life. Mm-hmm. But then to like have him be be a robot, I was kind of like, oh, OK, OK. I don't know that that was that's my personal feelings about it, but like that's I was saying, hard. opinions opinions are different. Mm-hmm. I a- I genuinely okay. liked the premise of this movie though, the idea mm. of you are stuck in space and there's something out there. You are stuck in a cage with something that wants to kill you. I was mm. like, oh okay, I could see where a lot of people started with liking this, and then it kind of makes sense to me later on, like how it kicked off like books and comic books and um, spinoffs, sequels, exactly. (laughs) Mm.
1: The video game alien isolation is horrifying. Um, I don't actually have the stomach to play it. I prefer to watch a playthrough on YouTube because Mm. I can't get past the first 15, 20% of the story. I'm like, Nope, can't leave now. Robots are going to get out and kill me. Um, Or like, Nope. One of the other, one of the other people, I just got shot in the back, you know, and my own skill as a video games player is more or less limited to flipping around New York. So yeah, sometimes it's more fun for me to watch the game unfold and try to play it myself because I know I'm not going to get very far.
2: <laughs> True. I feel the same way. I'm not very great with video games. So. <laughs> we,
1: we did a alien-inspired game of Doctor Who. The episodes are called Lantern in the Smoke uh, about a gas, uh, a gas giant with its own refinery in orbit called the Sigorni, where you know they're siphoning up gas and processing it and shipping it off to be snack food uh, preservative. And the TARDIS lands and they were invited there by robots they did not expect to see. And they're like, okay, we're looking around, we're getting the tour, when is the shoe gonna drop? And then the shoe drops and things are on fire and suddenly you have different things trying to kill you and make their way around the ship. Only instead of drooling aliens from, you know, a German's nightmares, uh, they are gas aliens that kill you without leaving a lot of blood behind because this is Doctor Who. <laughs> 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 and we want it to be wow. at least palatable for the kitties, you know?
0: Yeah. Wow. Oh, that sounds so fun. I do want to transition into warm-up questions, if you're ready. More like cool-down questions. Oh, Season absolutely. More rapid-fire, like, whatever comes off. Top of your head, throw it at us. So. Bring it. What was the first horror movie you remember seeing?
1: Probably Aliens. You saw the sequel
0: before the original?
1: I was (laughs) 12. What do you want from me? Um, My brother was having some kind of a pizza party. He was old enough for scary movies. I wasn't. So I was on the stairs watching between the bars of every bit that I could catch and was hooked. But Aliens. Was probably my first legit like this was intended to scare adults scary movie. Before that, it was probably Watcher in the Woods, the little known Disney live action one. Um, it's more of a fantasy ghost story kind of thing. But I've I've I had nightmares for years about blindfolded girls uh, trying to reach out, trapped behind mirrors, and oh. just <laughs> mm, scary scary stuff. Have you written an RPG
0: yeah. about them since it hits about, so deep?
1: You know. Like, I didn't think that I had, but they probably did come out a little bit. Um, The first adventure the Fixer faces is in old-timey England, and he and his uh, companion Maeve, who is a local to the area, um, wind up facing mirror monsters um, that can flatten you. And um, like the sign that you're getting closer to them is, you know, the the lights are getting darker, you're tiptoeing further and further in and you pass a lantern on the wall and you pass a second lantern on the wall and the third is not actually a lantern. It's just the image of a lantern pasted against the wall because all dimensionality has been sucked right out of it. Like finding someone fleeing spread up the stairs like they've been painted on the stairs kind of stuff. The sound of tape peeling off of a flat surface to evoke the sound of them traveling up the wall and leaving messages in chalk dust. Like yeah, mirror, like I now that in hindsight, being what it is, I think probably um, through the looking glass has at least something to owe as thanks to Watcher in the woods. So thanks for letting me know about that. <laughs> oh boy.
0: You know, I mean, a lot of our best writing sometimes comes from deepest traumas. So, <laughs> especially oh, oh, in the oh, horror oh. realm.
1: Oh, oh, oh. you just spoke some true truth, Kylie. <laughs> oh, man.
0: So, what is your least favorite horror movie and why?
1: Oh, man. That's a great question. Most recently, I would probably guess Bodies, 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 uh, which oh, is kind of a goodness. split so- between a murder mystery... And a horror film, like a slasher horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to the theater with my spouse to see it and was kind of like paying attention to it. And also, like, the protagonists are a good 20 years younger than me. So clearly, this was not made with me in mind, but I'm still trying to put it through that filter of, you know, raised on a diet of Agatha Christie, murder she wrote in Colombo. So, like, okay, so blada, blah huh and if we can spoil a film that has come out already i was really really disappointed i was really disappointed that there was no killer that it was uh just a bunch of stupid drug-addled 20-year-olds mistaking a horrible situation for something with actual menace or forethought which mm-hmm. it did not and It didn't leave a bad taste in my mouth, but I was left with really, really okay.
2: I had similar feelings about that movie.
1: My because the reason sounds like Euphoria
0: meets horror, but not really.
1: Euphoria, (laughs) (laughs)
0: like the like the TV (laughs) show.
1: Yeah. (laughs) My biggest problem with it was that nobody learned anything. Nobody changed. Or grew. The point of a story is for something to change about the main character other than, oh, their heart's beating, and oh, no, they're dead. And the characters in this learns not a goddamn thing. Um, pardon my language. And that's the point of a story. For mm-hmm. And if the characters can't learn something, then hopefully the reader or the viewer learns something from their mistakes, And it just felt like such a missed opportunity to watch these clumsy idiots, you know, bumping into each other in the dark, letting their fears get the better of them time and time again. Like their paranoia was based on shallowness and fear, not any actual basis of plot or forethought or anyone's actual idea of something. And... It, yeah, it, I didn't. I didn't really enjoy that nearly as much. Mostly because nobody's learned anything, you know. Yeah, you you hit the nail on the head there for sure. Ugh.
0: Well, do you have a least favorite horror trope then? Because you talk a lot about ingredients for your stories, and I feel like tropes are a key ingredient when it comes to making horror films.
1: Um, that's a great question. My least favorite horror trope. If I could get rid of one, I think it would be uh, once you've had sex, you are doomed to die. Um, I don't think having a healthy sex life or not should determine whether or not you are slain by the Mm -hmm. monster of the week. Um, Sigourney Weaver's character in Cabin of the Woods put it so beautifully. um, You're being punished because you are young. And that stayed with me as much as anything else about that film, which did a great job of just skewering so many horror tropes that they haven't been used since because no one could take them seriously again. If a young pair of characters are, are fleeing through the woods or the streets of their suburb or you know third place and have a moment of safety and security and want to celebrate being alive by having consensual Congress between two adults, that should not limit their life expectancy just for the sake of them having a sex life. Um, yeah, that's my feeling on that.
0: <laughs> Reach, we did um, Scream as our previous series, uh, which will mm-hmm. be out by the time that this episode comes out. And nice. we made that a pretty big plot point in our RPG by determining who lives or dies based on that.
1: Because, mm-hmm.
0: you know, mm-hmm. Scream is yeah, all about would... those metatropes, they really honor them.
1: It really does. It it sends them up and it uses them and it hangs a lampshade on them and then it turns the lights off and stabs you in the dark. It's just <laughs> chef's kiss.
0: So I have a couple more quick questions. Are you a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn?
1: Uh, what, is, what do you mean by fawn?
0: So that would be um, like in a situation of confrontation, leaning in closer to the person you're against, like almost uh, curling in
1: uh, i i in all candor i am one who freezes uh mm-hmm. because i'm considering my options i don't want to piss off the person in front of me and like i can rally and stick up for myself and things like that but i don't fight i don't run i f- freeze and yeah
0: so if you came face to face with the xenomorph then what would you do
1: I I know what I Casey Jones who has experienced all of the films and the comics and listens to the score hundreds of times would do. Um I don't entirely know what a PC based on me with no experience whatsoever with the alien
0: uh Well what would you do as a person then?
1: Yeah. Oh, this I is more of like you. I you would run. I would get the hell out. Like <laughs> if an. Well the thing is like the alien does not chase the alien sets up shop and then you wander into its clutches. In the the movie, there is never the, a scene of being chased down the halls and like, oh God, oh God. No, you wandered right into its clutches. its It hasn't been chasing you. It's just behind you right now. The same way in aliens, you know, um, they have to go into... The compound and deeper and deeper before they realize. Well, this isn't right. This is uh, this is pretty bad. Should we turn around and leave? Oh wait, we've already gone too far. Okay, the point of no return was behind us, guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, oh no! <laughs> yeah.
2: I think yeah, you, you have a good point there. It should it should be pretty simple to to run away from this type of creature. I heard when they were making the film, they had the the person in the costume. Learning Mm -hmm. to like do tai chi and mime classes, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to slow down the movements. So in general, I think of that monster. I think like, okay, this it it didn't seem like they were moving slow, like when they wanted to like pounce and attack, but in general, from getting from one small location to the next, like small slow movements, kind of.
1: The thing is, though, it was always slow. Like Mm -hmm. if you go back to the scene where Tom Skerritt is crawling through the tunnels in the dark. He is not being pursued. Um, Mm. The alien does not reach out and grab him. When the lights come on the alien, his hands are already out, waiting for you. Um, I I hope I'm not misremembering that, but it's basically just a jazz hands of death. Yeah, that sounds Um, right,
0: I mean. (laughs) jazz hands of death i think is what we're gonna have to call this episode <laughs> yeah, i love that
1: hey. we, have a winner. we have a winner
0: oh my gosh well i hope you'll be ready to run in this upcoming rpg
1: i hope so, so too i am dying to find out <laughs> jazz
0: hands of death
2: uh casey thank you so much for joining us it's been a wonderful conversation uh we also want to thank all of our listeners for taking the time to just listen or watch our podcast uh take the time give us a listen give us a like and uh thank you again casey for joining us bye everybody
0: and don't forget that casey will be joining us for our rpg
2: but they may all not right. make it out alive
0: <laughs> ah! <laughs>